Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. All right, friends, we are in Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, we're about a portion of the way into the chapter already. Um, so we'll just pick up where we left off there. We are in the section that is called the Olivet Discourse because it took place on the Mount of Olives. Here we're in the last day or so of Jesus' life on the earth. Uh, and his disciples had asked him a key question, what will be the signs of the end of time? Look at verse 3 in Matthew 24. They, they come and they ask him this question, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And so they want to know about the end of the world and so Jesus is going to begin and tell them about the end of the world and uh, clue them into the series of events that will take place when these things happen. Signs, observable signs that people could look to that would reveal that the end is near. Jesus calls those signs birth pains, like a woman that is about to go into labor. Stay right there. A woman that is about to go into labor or is in the midst of labor, and as the, the birth pains would increase in intensity and increase in frequency, Jesus said you can look to the heavens and see these things and know that the end is near. And we spent some time considering what some of those signs are. We see in, in verse 4 and 5 of the chapter, he says that many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. So one of the signs that the end is near, if you will, is that there will be a spiritual deception that comes upon the earth, leading many astray to the point of even following after false messiahs. We see in verse 6, Jesus says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. You'll hear of kingdom coming against kingdom and nation coming against nation. We see also in verse 7 that there will be geological instability, earthquakes in various places he talks about there. Luke chapter 21, which is a parallel passage to Matthew chapter 24, says that there will be various humanitarian crises that rises up on the earth. Famines and pestilences will be prevalent in the last days. But again, notice what he says in verse 8, Jesus that is. He says, all of these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So they may not actually be events or, or be part of the last days, but they are events leading up to the last days. They are but the beginning of the birth pains. Now, if you were with us last week, you know I took a moment or so to kind of review some things so that we're not just kind of out there like, what is this guy talking about? So let me just kind of review a couple of things. When I'm speaking of the last days, the Bible, when it refers to the last days, it's referring to from the church era on, from the day of Pentecost that we read about in Acts chapter 2 to the rest of time to follow, the Bible calls that the last days. Peter references it as the last days. But oftentimes when we're speaking of the last days, or we're reading books about the last days, we're talking about the very end of things. We're talking about when the Antichrist will come, and the number 666, and the return of Jesus, and the battle of Armageddon. And so, though the term could mean something else, when I'm using it today, I'm referring to the end of things, which will ultimately culminate with Jesus Christ returning to the earth a second time, and as it says in Revelation chapter 19 and Revelation chapter 20, establishing a period of time, a thousand years, we call it the millennium, 
of the righteous rule of Christ upon the earth. So that's what I'm referring to as I speak about the last days. What the scripture indicates is immediately leading up to the return of Christ, there will be a period of seven years. And it's oftentimes called the tribulation. And the tribulation is a period of time that will be marked by the rise of the Antichrist, a, a term you've no doubt heard, and his signing of a seven-year peace agreement. At bare minimum, a seven-year agreement with the nation of Israel seems as if uh, essentially a seven-year agreement with the entire world. And this seven-year agreement, which we read about in Daniel chapter 9, verses 22 to 27, that is the tribulation period. He's not going to advertise it as such, but that seven-year period is the tribulation period. And it's a peace agreement that the world is going to look at and, and they're going to expect the result of that agreement will be peace, prosperity, tranquility on the earth like no other time before. And yet as we look at the scripture, we see that it's just the opposite. It's anything but those things, but rather it's a period of death. It's a period of destruction and it's a period of rebellion. Now let me ask you this question. How many of you were here last week? Just raise your hand and hold it, keep it up. If you were here last week. Okay, so I see who was here last week. Now, if you, keep it up. I, Simon didn't say. If you did not do the homework, you can put your hand down. So now I can see who did the homework. George, I love you, brother. I see you over there, too. Thank you, my faith. And in the back, I see you. I see you. Um, so I asked you, look, I didn't give you a big homework assignment, friends. I asked you to read. I asked you to read the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, the book of 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and as much of Ezekiel as you want to. And I cannot believe that you guys didn't do that. Alrighty. And so, obviously, I expect that most of you wouldn't. I was going to bring lollipops. I would have, George, I have one for you. I'll get it for you. Susan, give it to and split it. Break it in half. Give it to Suzanne. Alrighty. So, the reason why I wanted you to kind of look at those is because Jesus in a chapter or so, is touching on things that are covered in the entire book of Revelation, essentially chapter 6 through chapter 19. And so there's a little more detail when Jesus says there's going to be famines or whatever, one word, there's a whole chapter devoted to what that's going to look like in Revelation. So if you didn't do so, you might want to go back and you can consider it. Jesus is talking about the events of the last days. And as I pointed out last week, at some point, Jesus transitions from, and we don't know exactly when, from events leading up to, to events actually in. And the reason why we know that again is because in the tribulation. And the reason why we know that is, as I pointed out, verse 15 speaks of the abomination of desolation. You can see that in Matthew chapter 24, 15. And as I pointed out last week, we know when that event will occur. Not the date on the calendar necessarily, but we know that that event will take place at the halfway mark of the tribulation period. And so, obviously, if Jesus says, when you see that, Jesus has transitioned from events leading up to the tribulation to events actually in the tribulation. Daniel 9, 27 says, And the Antichrist shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. Again, remember, one week is seven years. It's like the word decade. And for half of that week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall come one, that should say one, who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolate. 
the halfway mark, three and a half years. The book of Revelation refers to it as 42 months. Another place it says 1,280 days. All of those add up to the same thing. The halfway mark of the seven-year agreement, the Antichrist will violate the agreement that he has signed with Israel, and specifically he will do that or demonstrate that the agreement is off by going into the temple of the Jewish people, which has to be rebuilt. There is no temple currently, but will be rebuilt. He'll go into that particular temple, and he will set himself up to be worshipped as God in that temple, ultimately establishing an image of himself, we learn in the book of Revelation. He will defile the Jewish temple. That is the abomination of desolation. And from that point on, here's how Paul describes that event. It is in 2 Thessalonians 2. He says, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. That's the Antichrist. The son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. So initially, when the Antichrist signs this agreement, there will be this sense of peace, prosperity, tranquility. It's going to be wonderful here on the earth. But as time begins to go on during the tribulation period, no doubt people are going to begin to have their doubts about this guy. I don't know about this guy. I used to like him, but now that he's in power, all doubts will be dispelled when he sets himself up in the temple to be worshipped as God. No longer doubting. In that event, Jesus says in, in verse 21 of Matthew 24, that will be the trigger point, the start of the great tribulation. For Jesus says, and he uses, though not as a phrase, he just simply says, then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. So the full seven-year period is called the tribulation, but more properly, the latter half is called the great tribulation. And it begins with the abomination which causes desolation of the Antichrist going into the temple to set himself up as God. So again, at some point, Jesus transitions from events leading up to to events actually in the tribulation. Now the question is, when does that transition take place? Now there are some Bible scholars that will look at all of the verses from verse 3 and following and say he, he starts it in verse 3. From verse 3 on, he's in the tribulation. There are others who will say, no, he doesn't. the tribulation itself doesn't begin until verse 9. There are others that say it doesn't begin until verse 15. So there's some discussion as to when the tribulation actually occurs. But either way, we do know by the time we get to verse 15, we are in the middle of the tribulation. Because, again, we see the abomination of desolation. Now, you might hear that and you're like, all right, fine, whatever. Whenever it happens, it happens. What do I need to know? Why are we debating this? Why are we discussing it? The reason why I think it's important is because it helps us to understand who Jesus is speaking to. Now, certainly, he's speaking to the disciples in front of him. They asked him a question. He's answering their question. But in addition to speaking to the, the folks that are in front of them, he's speaking to the believers that would come for 2,000 years afterwards, that would read Matthew 24, and in addition to that, the church, he's speaking to folks that are going to be alive during this particular time and telling them what they should be aware of and what they should be looking at and so on. And so again, it's important because it helps us discern 
who Jesus is actually speaking to. And so the question is, is he speaking to you and I? Now you and I, if we're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that means you are a part of what is called the church era. And again, the church era began at Pentecost, somewhere right in that vicinity, I guess you might be able to make the case. But the church era began around uh, at uh, the day of Pentecost. And it continues until the calling out of the church here on the earth, which is called the rapture. So it'll continue from there, 2,000 years, maybe another 1,000 years or so. But until Jesus takes his church out of here, that is called the church era. And you read about Pentecost in Acts 2. You read about the rapture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let me read this to you. It says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them, those that have died in the faith, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. That's the rapture. Now, I will tell you this, the term rapture does not appear in the Bible. And so some people say, you know, the Bible doesn't even use the word rapture. Yes, I'm fully aware that it doesn't use the word rapture. It doesn't use the word trinity either. And yet it teaches a trinity. So it doesn't use the word rapture, but it teaches a rapture. Here in 1 Thessalonians 4, that phrase there, called up together, caught up, it's a Greek word which means herpazo. It means to snatch away violently. The word rapture comes from a form of a Latin word, which the Bible was translated into, and so that's where we get this word rapture from. But here in 1 Thessalonians 4, it's speaking of that event, that herpazo, that being called up and taken out of the earth. So the question is, is he speaking to the church era? Is he speaking to those followers in the tribulation era? So when the church, in my understanding, is taken out of this earth, in the rapture, others will come to know the Lord after that event. And they are believers of the tribulation era. Some have referred to them as, and I think it's a good term, as tribulation saints. That there will be those that recognize that Jesus Christ is the Messiah in the midst of that seven-year tribulation period time of time. So is Jesus speaking of those that come before the tribulation or those that come during the tribulation? I believe he's speaking of those that come to know Christ during the tribulation. Again, tribulation saints, we will call them. Now, as we've made our way through the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, we've been looking at Jesus' life, his ministry, how he goes about engaging people. And one of the things that we've noticed about the Lord is that his ministry was primarily amongst people of Jewish descent, primarily amongst people of Jewish descent. Now there were Gentiles that came to know Christ, came to follow Christ, were impacted by Christ, healed by Christ, uh, and so on. But again, the primary followers of Jesus were those of Jewish descent. It's not until Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 10, that the gospel began to go forth around the entire world. And in Acts chapter 10, we read about the Jewish, or excuse me, the Jerusalem Council a gathering of church leaders, the apostles, if you will. And there at the Jerusalem Council, they were told how God had essentially done a great work amongst the Gentile people. And initially, they were like, what are you talking about? He only works amongst Jewish people. I'm like, I'm just telling you, I was there and I saw what he did. And they're like, wow. And this is what they said. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. I think we have the 
the number, yeah, it's verse 28. To the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And it's from that point on that in addition to the gospel going to the Jewish people, it also went forth to the Gentile people. Now, I don't know exactly the breakdown then as to now, but it's very similar. Today, roughly 2% of the world's population is Jewish. 98% of the world's population is Gentile, non-Jewish. And it was the same type of numbers back then. So now as the gospel is going forth to the Gentiles scattered all over the world, Jesus' ministry, so to speak, was no longer primarily to Jewish people, but it was primarily now to Gentile people. All of that will flip back during the tribulation period. Because during the tribulation, those percentages will once again change, and God's work will be primarily amongst Jewish people once again. Gentiles will be able to come to know the Lord, just as they did during Jesus' first coming. But again, in these events that we're going to look at today, God's work is primarily in the last days going to be among Jewish people. Followers of Christ of Jewish descent. And I think that's why in these verses here, so many of the verses speak of Jewish things. So follow along with me. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Now the New Testament primarily speaks of false teachers. The Old Testament speaks of false prophets. If you look at verse 15 and 16, it speaks of the temple and of Judea. Now, certainly the temple and Judea are of interest to the Gentile, but they're of a whole lot more interest to the person of Jewish descent. Verse 20 speaks of the Sabbath, which is something the Jew is called to observe, not the Gentile. And so with those types of examples and more, it becomes clear, I think, that Jesus is speaking to Jewish believers, not Gentile believers. And part, that's part of the reason why I draw the conclusion that the church is not going to be found during the tribulation era that the church will be out of here because of the rapture. Again, 1 Thessalonians 4, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with those that have already died in the faith, in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So the rapture. Now, let me make a quick, one more quick point. I think a lot of times as believers, particularly if we've had a particular rough day or a particular rough week, we might say something like, I just can't wait for Jesus to come back. Now, we've we got to be careful with our terminology to some degree. If we're talking about Jesus coming back, we're, we're probably referencing his glorious return in the clouds, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, the second coming of Jesus Christ is to be distinguished from the rapture of the church. The second coming of Jesus Christ will occur at the end of the tribulation period. It will be the start of the millennium, the 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth, and as a part of the second coming of Jesus Christ, the scripture makes clear that the church will come with him. Now that's to be distinguished from his first coming, so to speak, not Jesus as a baby, but from the rapture. The rapture will occur, in my understanding, prior to the tribulation, and not where Jesus will come with his church, but rather Jesus will come for his church. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, we read this, that at the rapture, that believers who have died will have their bodies resurrected, and along with believers who are still living, will meet the Lord in the air. So this is 1 Corinthians 15. 
He said, Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And by sleep, he means die. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. The dead will be raised, the church will meet the dead, and together they will meet the Lord in the air, and we shall all be changed. Now, I will say this about the, that's the rapture. I'll say this about the rapture. Good Christians, solid people walking with the Lord, reading their Bibles, and trying to understand what the Bible says, good Christians disagree on when the rapture will actually occur. And so there are some like myself that hold a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. That at any moment in time, as it says, in the twinkling of an eye, we can blink our eyes for a moment and the rapture will have occurred. That at any moment of time, that would be called a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. There are others that hold terms or uh, views that are described by terms like pre-wrath rapture or, pre or mid-tribulation rapture. That is somewhere by or around that mid-mark where the three and a half years where the Antichrist sets himself up to be worshipped, somewhere in that mid-mark the church will be called out of here. There are others that hold that the rapture will occur at the end of the tribulation, that the church at the end of seven-year period of time will be taken out, caught up into the air, meet the Lord, do a quick U-turn, and come back with the Lord. There are some that hold that particular view. And so there's enough... Uh, obscurity about what it actually teaches that people can look at the scripture and come up with an understanding of when the rapture will occur. And so I think we need to have a little grace with those that may not necessarily agree with our viewpoint because there's good people that come up with different conclusions. But here's what we know for certain, and nobody doubts this. No Bible believer doubts this. What is clear is that Jesus Christ is coming back for his church and he will come back with his church to bring about the end of this age, that, Je that his disciples referenced to him, to Jesus when he said, when will the end of these things be? We know that Jesus Christ will come back for his church, and he will come back with his church at the end of the age. And so again, with that question, when will the end of these things be, Jesus says in verse 9, let's read here, he says, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all, for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So what will be the sign of the end of the age is the question. Tribulation, persecution, martyrdom will be some of the signs of the end of the age. Now certainly, believers throughout the last 2,000 years have experienced tribulation, persecution, and martyrdom. We have brothers and sisters in the faith now, today, scattered around the world that are experiencing tribulation, persecution, and martyrdom for their faith but Jesus says, just like birth pains that increase in intensity, increase with uh, frequency, these are but the beginning of those birth pains. What we know about this is this, that during the tribulation, the persecution of believers will be unprecedented from what the world has ever seen. And as we see here, moving into verse 10 and 11, as a result of that great persecution, 
that is going to come upon the saints, many will abandon the faith. That is, they will recant in order to save their lives. Are you a follower of Jesus? If you say, yes, I am, your head's going to get cut off. And that many will say, no, I'm not a follower of this Jesus. Verse 10 seems to indicate that many will turn on one another, that they'll betray one another. In order to save their own life, they'll turn over another person uh, and kind of send them to the executioner. Now, there's some question. Does this mean that tribulation saints will abandon the faith in order to save their own lives and that fellow believers will turn on one another? There are some that conclude that's what it means. And we've seen examples of that in history. Believers who, when kind of put to the test, put to the fire, failed. We see examples in the book of Acts. Paul will talk about it in his Gospels. That prior to becoming a believer himself, he was committed to destroying the church of Jesus Christ. He was a persecutor of the church. And that he would travel around and he would give people the opportunity to either renounce Jesus or to lose their life. And Paul tells us that many of the people that he challenged for their, for their faith actually recanted and said they weren't followers of Jesus. And Paul would go on for years to feel horrible about the things that he did to his fellow brothers and sisters in the faith uh, that he had come to when he became a believer himself. So it certainly could mean that. It's happened through history that a believer, when put to the test, fails that particular test. So that might be describing that. Or it could mean that there are folks that are hanging around the faith. They're kind of hanging around the church and they're, they kind of look the part or whatever. But when push comes to shove and they realize, you know what, great, we're glad you're here. But you probably have to give your life for being here. Well, then I'm out of here. Goodbye. And so it could mean that's what it's referring to. There's, there's enough obscurity in the text that we can't say for certain if these are actual believers denying the faith or pretend believers denying the faith. But we do know this again, that a sign of the end of the age will be intense persecution, tribulation, and even martyrdom of the saints. Verse 11 tells us another mark of the end of the age will be the rise of false prophets that will lead many astray. False prophets that will arise and say, hey, follow me to safety. I know that the Antichrist has done what he has done and we got to get out of here. Follow me. And that that false prophet will actually lead them to a place of destruction. Again, the tribulation is a period of hell on earth. It'll be a period marked by great death and great destruction. Again, if you haven't done so, read through Revelation chapter 6 through chapter 19. And you get an indication with a little more specificity of what's going to be happening during this time period here. Great death and destruction. And as a result of that, death and destruction, that wickedness, that lawlessness, the scripture says that the hearts of man on the earth will become hardened. Revelation chapter 16 speaks to this a bit, I should say. And it's rather clear that rather than repenting, as people on the earth are seeing the mighty works of God on the earth, rather than repenting of that, Revelation 16 makes clear that they will rather harden their heart. Rather than repenting, they will harden their heart, they will shake their fist at heaven, they will curse the God of heaven. Revelation 16 says, The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed, it should say, the God of heaven for their pains and their sores. But notice, and yet they did not repent. 
So they know God's involved in all of this, but they would not repent. Rather than repenting, the scripture says that the unbelieving inhabitants of the earth will dig in their heels. They will harden their hearts. They will refuse to repent of their sin and of their rebelliousness. In addition, Jesus makes clear, in addition to hardening their hearts against God and cursing God, they will harden their hearts against one another. The King James Version translates this as lawlessness will increase. The idea is that there's an every man for himself mentality that will develop on the earth. Jesus himself in Matthew 24, he would say, and the love of many will grow cold, which speaks of this idea that there's an absence of natural affection toward our fellow man. And so even in our day, you know, we, we all kind of go our own direction. But if something happens, particularly on a cataclysmic level to our fellow man, we're, we're moved to compassion, to care for that individual or those people, the car accident, to get out of our car, to make the phone call, to make sure everyone is okay. Not so during the days of the tribulation. Every man for himself. Lawlessness will be revealed. And it'll be nuts. But again, notice Jesus says, but even that's not the end of the age. It's but the beginning. It's leading to the end of the age. Many more things will continue beyond that persecution, that tribulation, that martyrdom, beyond every man for himself. Jesus says, look, much more is even to come for those that will be in that age. And he encourages them to endure to the end. For then they shall be saved, Matthew 24, 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, this isn't saying that unless you live out the tribulation, you won't be able to go to heaven. You won't be able to be saved. What it's speaking of, Jesus here, is that salvation will surely come at the end. Continue to endure. Don't give up hope. And so on. So he exhorts these believers, look, times won't be pretty but endure to the end because deliverance will most certainly come. Now in verse 14, he says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Certainly it's going to seem as if there is no hope for the gospel in these days. It will be a dark, deadly, destructive time where it will seem as if the Antichrist is in complete control of the entire world. But Jesus here reminds us, though it may seem as if the gospel doesn't have any chance, the gospel most assuredly does. And so he says, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. Again, despite the fact that wickedness abounds on the earth, God's purposes will not be thwarted. Even in the midst of those things, his word will continue to go forth. The gospel will continue to be preached and it will be preached to all nations and then the end will come. Again, times will be tough, but the Lord will prevail. And even so in our day. And in our day, it's just a shadow of these things that are ahead of us or ahead of the world, at least. But in our day, we live in a day in a time of difficulty. Certainly, we live in a time of trial. We see, we experience opposition to God and to the things of God. And here we live in a nation with freedom and liberties. And even in our nation, sometimes there's cultural opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and sometimes there's even legal opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, in the midst of that, we know this, that the Lord will prevail. Scripture makes clear. His word will continue to go forth. 
People will continue to be converted. His plans will continue to be accomplished. And so it's a reminder for us, though it is spoken to people that will be living in those dark days of the tribulation, to not lose heart, but to continue to persevere, for God is going to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Now, before I move on from verse 14, let me just make a, a quick point. Because some have drawn the conclusion that what verse 14 teaches is, is that the church has to go forth around the world and preach the gospel to every last individual. And until the church does that, Jesus can't come back. That's the conclusion. Now, that is certainly a motivating factor for us to preach the gospel to all the nations of the earth. It's probably a theme verse for a lot of mission organizations uh, that are out there. You want Jesus to come back, don't you? Well, come on, let's get busy, start sharing the gospel, uh, and so on. And so I understand it, but I do not think that's what this verse is teaching. I do believe the Bible says we are to go forth to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, that we are to proclaim the gospel and make disciples of every nation. We're to start here in our backyard, and we're to move across the nation and across the world, and so on. We are called to do that, but not so that we can bring Jesus back. It's not as if Jesus is limited until we get our act together and do that. I don't think the Bible teaches that. And there are, there's an increasing trend within some wings of Christianity that do teach that. And so I kind of throw it out there. I don't think that this is what the Bible is teaching. We do know this, that the gospel will be proclaimed to every living being in these last days events. That's what this verse means. The Bible will be proclaimed to every living being in these last days events. Revelation chapter 7 speaks of 144,000 spirit-filled trained evangelists that will go forth around the world to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Revelation 7 depicts and tells us that they are 12,000 from every tribe of the Jewish uh, people, the Jewish nation. 12,000 of each of them times 12, 144,000 evangelists that will go proclaiming the gospel. Revelation chapter 14 is interesting because that speaks of maybe some of those 144,000 can't get there. What Revelation chapter 14 tells us is for those they couldn't get to, an angel from heaven will proclaim the gospel. Let me read to you Revelation 14. It says, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. So the gospel will be proclaimed to every person on the earth just prior to the return of Jesus Christ. But it's not the church that's bringing about the return of Jesus Christ. God's going to see to it that the gospel gets preached even so much that he's going to have an angel do so. And what an incredible display of the mercy of God that even in the midst of hell on earth, when wickedness will abound on the earth and every man will look out only for his own interest, that God will give one more opportunity for people to repent of their sin and to turn to him as this angel goes forth to proclaim the gospel to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And so that's, I believe, Jesus' point. It's to encourage the disciples that though it won't look like it, the gospel will not be snuffed out. It will continue to go on. It will never be snuffed out. It will even be proclaimed throughout the world in the darkest days that the world has ever known. Verse 14. Now, continuing on to 15. Let me read a little bit of this. Jesus said, 
When you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in the house. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now and no, never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, Jesus says. If they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, don't go out there. If they say, look, he's here in this inner room, don't believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So even in our day, as someone rises up and says, I am the second coming of Jesus, I am the Messiah, you should come and follow me, you know that they're a liar. Because if somebody has to clue you in to the fact that he's the Messiah or there's the Messiah over there, you know it's not true based on what Jesus said here. When he comes, the whole world will know that he has come. He comes back in power, and you'll know it. Now, the context of the, the last seven or eight verses I read goes back to verse 19 where Jesus was instructing about persecution and tribulation. And there, excuse me, verse 9, I said 19, back in verse 9, where he's talking about intense persecution. And Jesus says in the context of that, when you see the abomination of desolation, you know it's at that moment you should flee Jerusalem, flee Judea, and get yourself to the mountains. And again, we've looked at, we know when the abomination takes place, halfway mark of the seven-year peace agreement, 1,280 days after it's actually signed, so we know when, we know what it is. Antichrist will set himself up to be worshipped as God there in the temple. Jesus says, when you see it, it's time to get out of there. He says, flee to the mountains. Now again, based on the types of warnings that Jesus gives in 15 through 20, whatever, based on the types of warnings, it seems to be speaking to people of Jewish descent. Again, verse 15, he speaks of a temple. That's something for Jewish people. He speaks of fleeing Judea. That's Israel. He speaks of coming down off the rooftops. I don't know how many of you sit up on your rooftop, unless maybe you're at the beach or something and you're on a rooftop deck, but it's very common in the nation of Israel. In the evening, they have flat roofs, a little stairwell that goes up from the side. They'll go up on their roof. They'll sit up there on the roof in the cool of the day and enjoy uh, the evening, the cool of the evening. And so Jesus says to them, when you see that, come down and get out of there. Verse 20, he speaks of praying these things don't occur on the Sabbath. Again, I don't follow the Sabbath. Gentiles don't follow the Sabbath. The Jews do. So all of these things are things that would factor into a Jewish person's thinking, not a Gentile person's thinking. And so speaking to tribulation saints, primarily of Jewish descent, Jesus says, when you see this event, get yourself out of there and flee to, to the mountains there. I believe this is what the prophet Zechariah is speaking of. And so in Zechariah chapter 13, 
we read this. In the whole land, declares the Lord, it's talking about Israel, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. Two-thirds of the people shall be cut off. Today we know there's about eight million people, Jewish people, that live in the nation of Israel. And if this is speaking of the times roughly that we live in, two-thirds of those people will die because of the response of the Antichrist here at the start of the Great Tribulation. That's some five, six million people will die. Numbers that rival the Holocaust of the mid-20th century. Two-thirds. Now, for a number of different reasons, Bible scholars believe that the one-third that will remain alive that they will, as they flee to the mountains, particularly they will flee to the neighboring nation of Jordan. Interesting, of all the surrounding nations around Israel, Israel has a pretty poor relationship with every nation around them except for the nation of Jordan. And I just find that interesting. They will flee. As a matter of fact, it's the nation of Jordan that runs the Temple Mount area because the, the Muslims weren't interested in giving it to the Jews. And so they kind of came up with a compromise. Well, then we'll let our Muslim friends, the few we have, the nation of Jordan, they can run the Temple Mount area. So it's right there smack dab in the middle of Jerusalem, but it's run by a foreign nation. It's run by the nation of Jordan. So anyhow, uh, there are a number of Bible scholars that believe that the place that the Jews will flee when they leave Jerusalem will be to the wilderness of Jordan to an area that is known as Petra. You may have heard of the term Petra. Now, if we could just hit the lights real quick, please, those of you that are near, I wanted to show you a quick picture. This is Petra. You can see it there. And so it's like pretty cool. It looks like an old western town or something like that. That's all stone. The city itself is built into the rock. And as you would make your way, and there's, there's more to it than just this one little structure. As you would make your way essentially through that door, you make your way kind of tunnel through until this large opening. Do some Google search. You can see images of it. That's the area of Petra. And it, it could be, you'd be like in a stadium almost of surrounded by rocks. And so there are many Bible scholars that believe, you can hit those lights again, friends, that that's where the Jewish people will head to. They're going to go somewhere. And many, for a variety of reasons, you can dig into it if you want to, believe Petra is the place they're going to be. What's interesting to me is for some 1,800 years, Petra was a destroyed city. It was covered up by stone and dust and all this kind of stuff. And people doubted the very existence of Petra. They, they likened it to the mythological city of Atlantis or something that is under the sea. And yet it was in the 1800s, 1812, there was a fellow from England who was an archaeologist and he went and he began to search. He was looking for Petra, narrowed down his search and his little paintbrush there, he's clearing away the stone and he found this place. It's interesting, it was in the 1890s that there was a preacher here from the United States, I forget his name, but he believed so strongly that this is the place the Jews would go to. He bought 600 Hebrew New Testaments, New Testaments written in the Jewish language, and he put them in pots and nice sturdy lids on top of them, and he went to Petra and he hid them all around in the crags and the rocks so that when, in his mind, when the Jewish people get there, they'll find these pots, and I wonder what that is. And they'll find all these highlighted Bibles in their own language that they'll be able to read and they'll understand and perhaps come to the Lord. So uh, I don't know exactly if Petra is the place, but there's plenty of scholars that point to it. They're going to go somewhere. Jesus tells them to do so. And they'll be preserved during that particular time period. But notice what it says in verse 17. 
Jesus says, look, if you're up on the top of your house enjoying the cool evening, get down and don't even go in the house. Head for the hills. He's speaking of the haste that will be required. You delay even to go inside for five minutes to grab a bag, and you may do so at the expense of your life. Head for the hills. Not even a moment to pack the bag. Jesus says in verse 19, Alas for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days. The idea being, you know, if you're fleeing for your life and you've got to carry a diaper bag and a baby or something, it's just going to slow you down. If you've got to stop to feed the baby, it's going to slow you down. And there is no time to be slowed down. Slowed down? Is that proper English? I think so. Jesus says, pray that your flight may not be in winter or that it may not occur on the Sabbath. Now, if you've been to Israel, you know that everything comes to a standstill on the Sabbath. And when we take our trip over there, we're usually there for one of the Friday nights into Saturday. We're usually there for one of the Sabbaths. And all of that day, our guides and our bus driver and the people that are facilitating our trip, they will warn us, make sure you have everything you need before the Sabbath because everything shuts down. And you're like, nah, it'll be fine. I live in America and I know what Sundays are like or whatever. It's not like that here. Everything shuts down and the buses stop running and all of that kind of stuff. It's a different world, really. It's, it's, it's really interesting to be a part of it. And you're like, man, I knew I should have went to the store. You know, and I didn't believe him already. Believe him. I, I think the point that Jesus is saying, look, if everything shuts down and the Antichrist goes crazy, they're going to start driving their buses again. You can count on it. But then I said, oh, Sabbath, can't drive a bus. But you got to call, you know, who's our bus driver? What was that guy's name? I forget, anybody know where our bus? I think you made that up. All right, but, you know, you're going to call your bus driver and say, get down here right away. Leave the family, Aton? Aton, leave the family dinner, get down here right away. And he said, I'll be there in 30 minutes. That's too long to wait. Because the Antichrist has set his sight on those that are believers in God. Revelation 13 calls the Antichrist the beast. And the Antichrist will act as a beast on this particular day. So there's no time to delay. Notice how Jesus describes it. He describes it in a way that we've used now this term to describe that period of time. He says, for then there will be great tribulation. So again, the tribulation is a seven-year period of time. The last half where the Antichrist reveals who he really is, that we call the great tribulation. And we probably do so because of what Jesus says here. Then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Now, the world has seen some things throughout its history, particularly as we've entered into the 20th century. And technology has combined with our desire to kill. And we've invented all sorts of means of death and destruction uh, unparalleled, unparalleled in the history of the world in the last hundred years or so. But notice Jesus says here, even despite that true reality, the tribulation of those days will be unlike anything that the world has ever experienced. It will be unlike the nuclear fallout that hit the cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in the 1940s. It will be unlike the Holocaust, which was unleashed not only against the, the Jewish people, but against people all over the world. It would be unlike the mass genocides in places like Rwanda and Sudan more recently in our history. And Jesus adds, if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. The world would be annihilated of its population if those days weren't cut short. 
And notice Jesus adds, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. But for the sake of the elect. Now some read that word, the elect there. And because the church is called in the scripture, the elect, in various places, some conclude that this must mean that the church is in the tribulation. If the church is called the elect, this talks about the elect, the church must be there. What I would draw your attention to is this, that the church is not the only group of people in the Bible that are called the elect. In the Old Testament, the Jewish people are called the elect, or they're called a word which is similar in meaning, certainly to the elect. They're called his chosen. So for instance, Isaiah chapter 45, he says, for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, my elect, I call you by your name. It says in Isaiah 65, I'll bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountain, my chosen. Again, that word could be my elect, who shall possess it. And so there's other groups that are referred to as the elect. We know Old Testament saints, the Jewish people. We know uh, church era saints. And so tribulation saints could also be referred to as the elect. So just because it uses the term doesn't mean the church has to be there. It could be referring to, and it is, I believe, referring to tribulation believers. Jesus warns these believers. Verse 23. If anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it. False Christ, false prophets will arise. They'll perform great signs and wonders. They'll lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So, if they say to you, look, he's here in the wilderness, don't go out there, because it's not him. If they say to you, he's in this secret hidden room, don't go looking for him, because it's not him. He says, do not believe it. No one will have to wonder in those days, could this be the Christ? Jesus warns, if someone says to you, he's over here, or he's over there, Jesus says, don't believe them. He says, if folks rise up and they do all sorts of miracles, and nobody could do that, oh my goodness, he's got to be the Messiah. Jesus says, don't believe him. False Christ and false messiahs will rise up and lead people astray. If somebody says, hey, he's out here, and they whisper a secret to you, Jesus says, don't believe it, because the whole world will know when Jesus comes in his glorious appearing. He, now, Jesus says to his disciples in verse 27, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west. Now, a lot of times we see lightning and it's like a, a sharp lightning bolt. But then there's other lightning which kind of lights up the whole sky. That's what he's talking about. He says, as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Like lightning, his appearance will be sudden, it will be startling, and it will be universally apparent. No one is going to miss it. Now, the book of Revelation tells us that this event will take place as the nations of the world gather for one last great battle called the Battle of Armageddon. Now, it seems that somewhere toward the end of the tribulation period, people on the earth begin to see the Antichrist for who he is, and they begin to rebel against the Antichrist. And the nations of the earth will gather at a particular place to take on the Antichrist. It seems to indicate in the scripture that there will be three fighting factions during that war. And they will all gather in the nation of Israel at the, what's called the Plains of Megiddo. And because it's called the Plains of Megiddo, the battle that will, be, will take place there is Armageddon or Armageddon. So Revelation 16 says, For they are, there will be demonic spirits 
performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God Almighty, and they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. All the nations of the world will gather in that place. Now the culmination of that battle, none of them will win that battle. It's not this faction over that one or these two over that one. None of them will win the battle. It won't even have a chance to be finished because the culmination of that battle will be the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the great day of God Almighty that we see there in Revelation 16, 14. The great day of God Almighty is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Revelation 19 describes that return. And so I want to close out today by reading for you what that day will be like. When we go to uh, the plains of Megiddo, we kind of gather at the top of this little tell there where Solomon had his stables and we're looking out over the plains of Megiddo and it goes for miles and miles and miles. And you can see that there's sort of these trade routes over here and over here and kind of over here behind us and we're looking at it, imagining all the nations of the earth coming to that particular place and we get up there and we read this passage, we consider what the return of Christ will be. And so let me read it to you and in your mind try and depict what John is trying to describe in Revelation 19, he says, And then I saw heaven opened. And so we look to the, what is that, the, the western sky? I guess we look back over there and we imagine heaven opening. He says, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And the one sitting on the horse is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. And he has a name that is written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in his blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. This is Jesus. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. That's you and I. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, this is you returning with Christ. Remember I said the first coming he comes for his church. The second coming he comes with his church. This is you and I. So if you don't know how to ride a horse right now, you might want to go get some lessons. Because you will in that day in the future. And I imagine if you don't know how, he'll teach you and you'll be good to go. But it says, those uh, arrayed in <coughs> fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, the millennium. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. My friends, this day is coming. All of these things that we've taken notice of here this morning, these things, these events are coming. They are sure and they are certain. And because they're sure and they are certain, I exhort you the same way that John exhorted those who read his book of Revelation. His first century readers, John said this to them, these words are trustworthy and they are true. And blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. If there's a city and the entrance is through the gates and you climb over the wall, the authorities are going to come and talk to you. But if you go through the gates, you have the right to be in that particular city. John here says, blessed are those that enter the city by the gates, whose clothes, whose robes have been washed clean. The Bible makes clear that there's only one way that the stain of our sin that has uh, stained our robes can be replaced 
and we could have a new set of robes altogether, and that's through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. That he took his sin, or excuse me, he took our sin upon him, and he exchanges that for his righteousness. He takes our sin, we take his righteousness. And so I exhort you with this. Make sure your sins are forgiven. Make sure your sins have been forgiven. Make sure you've been washed clean of the stain of those sins. And make sure the righteousness of Christ has been imparted to you so that when God looks upon you, he sees not your unrighteousness, but the righteousness of his son. And so if you've never already done so, then I would encourage you, make sure you get saved before you leave here today. And I'd be happy to talk with you further as to exactly how you do that. But again, my friend, these things are trustworthy and they are true and they're coming upon this planet. And you want to make sure you're ready for that day. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can trust your word. And Lord, uh, at least in my heart and my mind, I think of those that I know that do not yet know you as their savior. And Lord, these, uh, these words cause uh, certainly a level of anxiety for them. And Lord, uh, it is our desire, as I believe it is your desire, that no one that we know, that we love, that we care about would have to go through these days, but that all would come to a knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, as your word says, how will they know unless they hear? And how will they hear unless someone is sent to them and preaches the word? And, and Lord, we believe that you have called each one of us to go forth into our world and to share the words of eternal life with those we come in contact with. And Father, I pray that uh, the words of Matthew 24 and of Revelation and 1 Thessalonians and Daniel and Ezekiel and other places in the scripture, I pray they would stir us and motivate us to the reality of the fact that the days are short. And Lord, even if each one of us here lives out our days on the earth, certainly those of us that are older can say they go by so fast. In a blink, in a moment, they go by. And so, Lord, even if there's another 50, 60, 70 years on the, on the earth, the days are short. And no one should delay proclaiming the good news of Christ to those that need to hear it. And certainly no one should delay receiving the good news of Christ. And so use this word to stir our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone. <laughs>